Section 14 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 19. The Reaction under Alexander II, Part 1. 1. Change of Attitude Toward the Jewish Problem The decided drift toward political reaction in the second part of Alexander's reign affected also the specific Jewish problem, which the homeopathic reforms designed to ameliorate a fraction of the Jewish people had tried to solve in vain. The general reaction showed itself in the fact that, after having carried out the first great reforms, such as the liberation of the peasantry, the introduction of rural self-government, and the reorganization of the administration of the law, the government considered the task of Russian regeneration to be completed and stubbornly refused to use the expression current at the time to crown the edifice by the one great political reform, the grant of a constitution and political liberty. This refusal widened the bridge between the government and the progressive element of the Russian people, whose hopes were riveted on the ultimate goal of political reorganization. The striving for liberty, driven on the ground by police and censorship, assumed among the Russian Jews the character of a revolutionary movement. And when the murderous hand of the third section descended heavily upon the champions of liberty, the useful revolutionaries retorted with political terrorism, which darkened the last days of Alexander II and led to his assassination. The complete emancipation of the Jews was out of place in this atmosphere of growing official reaction. The same bureaucracy which halted the march of the great reforms for the country at large was not inclined to allow even minor reforms when affecting the Jews only. Even the former desire for graded and partial amelioration of the position of the Jews had vanished. Instead, the center of the stage was again occupied by the old red tape activities, by discussions about the Jewish question, endless, no less than fruitless, in the recesses of bureaucratic committees and subcommittees, by oracular animal versions of governors and governors general upon the conduct of the Jews, and so on. Theory mongering of the reactionary variety was again at the premium. Once more, the authorities debated the question whether the Jews were to be regarded as useful or harmful to the state, instead of putting the diametrically opposite question of simple justice, whether the state which is called upon to serve the Jews as a part of civic organism of Russia is useful to them to an extent which may be lawfully claimed by them. Under Nicholas I, the, 
the government chancelleries had been busy inventing new remedies against the separatism of the Jews and their harmful pursuits. During the first liberal years of Alexander's reign, commerce ceased to be branded as harmful pursuit. Yet, as soon as the Jewish merchants, stimulated by the partial extension of their rights of residence and occupation, displayed a wider economic activity and became successful competitors of the original Russian businessmen, they were met with shouts of protest demanding that this Jewish exploitation be effectively curbed. In this connection, it must be pointed out that the economic advancement of the Jews was not altogether due to the privileges accorded to them by the Russian legislation, but was rather the effect of general economic conditions. The great progress in industrial life during the era of reforms, more particularly the expansion of railroad enterprises during the 60s and 70s, opened up a wide field for the energies of Jewish capitalists. Moreover, the abolition in 1861 of the old system of farming out the sale of liquor transferred a part of the big Jewish capital from the liquor traffic into railroad building. The Jewish excise farmers were converted into railroad men as shareholders, supply merchants, or contractors. A new Jewish plutocracy came into being, and its growth excited jealousy and fear among the Russian mercantile class. The government, filled with enthusiasm for the cultivation of large industries, was not as yet prepared to discriminate against the Jews whenever big capital was concerned. But it lent an attentive ear to the original Russian merchants whenever they complained about Jewish competition in petty trade, on which the lower Jewish classes depended for their livelihood. The government, which had not yet emancipated itself from the habit of assaulting its citizens and dividing them into a protected and a tolerated class, set out to elaborate measures for curbing the Jews belonging to the latter category. The question which confronted the government next was this. To what extent have the hopes for a fusion of the Jews with the original population been justified by the events? Here, too, the reply was unsatisfactory. The naive expectation that a few gratuities offered the Jews in the shape of privileges would fill them with the eager desire to fuse with the Russians did not come true. Strong as was the trend toward Russification in the new Jewish intelligentsia of the 60s, the broad masses of Jewry knew nothing of such a tendency. The authorities became suspicious. What if these crafty Hebrews should fool us again and refuse to pay for the donated rights by fusing with the Christians? Russian officialdom received new food for reflection, which was to last it for years, nay, for decades. 2. The informer Jacob Brafman Several occurrences were instrumental in determining the government to embark upon a new policy, that of investigating assiduously the inner life of the Jews. 
At the end of the 60s, a man appeared in Vilna who offered his services to the authorities as a detective and spy among the Jews. Jacob Brafman, a native of the government of Minsk, had deserted his race and religion in the last years of Nicholas' conscription, hoping thereby to escape the nets of the vigilant Kahal captors who wished to draft him into the army. Embittered against the Kahal agents who had become a mere police tools, Brafman desired to wreak vengeance upon the Kahal as a whole, nay, upon the very idea of Jewish communal organization. When the fusion or assimilation of the Jews became the watchword for the highest official circles, the astute convert found that he could make his way by exposing the influence which, in his opinion, checked the endeavors of the government. A memorandum presented by him to Alexander II, when the letter was passing through Minsk in 1858, opened to him the doors of the Holy Synod. He was appointed instructor of Hebrew at Greek Orthodox Seminary and entrusted with the task of finding ways to remove the difficulties placed by the Jews in the path of their co-religionists intending to go over to Christianity. His mission to facilitate apostasy among the Jews proved a failure, and his services as detective were not yet appreciated during the liberal years of Alexander's reign. However, with the reactionary turn in Russian politics in the middle of the 60s, these services were once more in demand. Brafman hastened to the hotbed of reactionary chauvinism, the city of Vilna, which was firmly held in the iron grip of Moraviov, and there began to expose the separatism of the inner life of the Jews before the highest administration of the province. He contended that the Kahal, though officially abolished in 1844, continued in reality to exist and to maintain a widely ramified judiciary, Bet-Din, that it constitutes a secret, uncanny sort of organization which wielded despotic power over the communities by employing such weapons as the harem excommunication, and hasaka, the Jewish legal practice of securing property rights, that it incited the Jewish masses against the state, the government, and the Christian religion, and fostered in these masses fanaticism and dangerous national separatism. In the opinion of Brafman, the only way to eradicate this secret Jewish government was to destroy the last vestige of Jewish communal autonomy by closing all religious and charitable societies and fraternities. The Jewish community itself ought to share the same fate, and the Jews, forming part of it, should be included among the Christian estates in the cities and villages. In a word, Judaism as a communal organization should pass out of existence altogether. The heads of Russian administration in Lithuania listened eagerly to the sinister revelation of the new Pepperkin. In 1866, Governor-General Kaufman appointed a commission, which also included a few Jewish experts, 
to look into the material compiled by Brahman. This material consisted of the minutes of the Kahal of Minsk from the first half of the 19th century, recording the entirely legitimate enactments which the communal administration had passed by virtue of the autonomous right granted to it by the government. Brafman published his material in a series of articles in the official organ of the province, the Vilensk Vestnik, the Vilna Herald. The articles were later published in a separate volume under the title Kniga Kahala, the Book of the Kahal. The data collected by Brafman was embellished with the customary anti-Semitic quotations from Talmudic and rabbinic literature and put in such a light that the government was placed on the horns of a dilemma either to destroy with one stroke the entire Jewish communal organization and all the cultural agencies attached to it or to run the risk of seeing Russia captured by the universal car. It may be added that Allianz is a elite universelle which had shortly before been founded in Paris for the purpose of assisting Jews in various countries, figured in Brafman's indictment as a constituent society of the Universal Jewish Kahal Organization. The Book of the Kahal was printed at public expense and sent out to all government offices to serve as a guide for Russian officials and enable them to fight the inner enemy. It was in vain that Brahman's ignorance of rabbinic law and his entire distortion of the role played by the Kahal in days gone by was exposed by Jewish writers in articles and monographs. It was in vain that Jewish members of the commission appointed by the governor-general of Vilna protested against the barbarous proposals of the informer. The authorities of St. Petersburg seized upon Brafman's discoveries as incontrovertible evidence of the existence of Jewish separatism and as a justification for the method of cautiousness which they saw fit to apply to the solution of the Jewish problem. 3. The Fight Against Jewish Separatism Another incident, which took place about the same time, served in the eyes of the leading government circles as an additional illustration of Jewish separatism. In 1870, Alexander II was on a visit to the Kingdom of Poland and there beheld the sight of dense masses of Hasidim with their long earlocks and flowing coats. The Tsar, repelled by this spectacle, enjoined upon the Polish governors strictly to enforce in their domains the old Russian law prohibiting the Jewish form of dress. Thereupon, the administration of kingdom threw itself special zest upon the important task of eradicating the ugly costumes and earlocks of the Hasidim. Shortly afterwards, the question of Jewish separatism was the subject of discussion before the Council of State. Under the unmistakable influence of the recent revelation of Brafman, the Council of State arrived at the conclusion that the prohibition of external differences in dress is yet far from leading to the goal pursued by the government, 
namely to destroy the exclusiveness of the Jews and the almost hostile attitude of the Jewish communities towards Christians, these communities forming in our land a secluded religious and civil caste, or one might say a state in a state. Hence the Council proposed to entrust a special commission with the task of considering ways and means to weaken as far as possible the communal cohesion among the Jews. December 1870. As a result, a commission of the kind suggested by the Council was established in 1871, consisting of the representatives of the various ministries and presided over by the Assistant Minister of the Interior, Lobanov Rostovsky. The Commission received the same Commission of the Amelioration of the Condition of the Jews. While the government was again engaged in one of its numerous experiments over the problem of Jewish separatism, an event unusual in those days took place, the Odessa Pogrom of 1871. In this granary of the South, which owed its flourishing commerce to Jews and Greeks, an unfriendly feeling had sprung up between these two nationalities, which competed with one another in the corn trade and in the grocery business. This competition, though of great benefit to the consumers, was a thorn in the flesh of the Greek merchants. Time and again, the Greeks would scare the Jews during the Christian Passover by their barbarous custom of discharging pistols in front of their church, which was situated in the heart of the Jewish district. But in 1871, with the approach of the Christian Passover, the Greeks proceeded to organize a regular pogrom. To arouse the mob, the Greek spread the rumor that the Jews had stolen a cross from the church fence and had thrown stones at the church building. The pogrom began on Palm Sunday, March 28. The Jews were maltreated and their houses and shops were sacked and looted. Having started in the immediate vicinity of the church, the riot spread to the neighboring streets and finally engulfed the whole city. For three days, hordes of Greeks and Russians gave free vent to the mob instinct, demolishing, burning, and robbing Jewish property, desecrating synagogues and beating Jews to senselessness in all parts of the city, undisturbed by the presence of police and troops who did nothing to stop the atrocities. The appeal of representative Odessa Jews to Governor General Kotsubwe was met by the retort that the Jews themselves were to blame, having started first, and that the necessary measures for restoring order had been adopted. The latter assertion proved to be false, for on the following day the pogrom was renewed with even greater vigor. Only on the fourth day, when thousands of houses and shops had already been destroyed, and the rioters, intoxicated with their success, threatened to start a regular massacre, the authorities decided to step in and to pacify the riprap by a rather quaint method. Soldiers were posted on the marketplace with wagon loads of rods 
and the rioters caught red-handed were given a public whipping on the spot. The fatherly punishment inflicted by the local authorities upon their naughty children sufficed to put a stop to the pogrom. As for the central government in St. Petersburg, the only thing it wanted to know was whether the pogrom had any connection with the secret revolutionary propaganda, which, beginning with the Jews, might next set them up against the nobility and Russian bourgeoisie. Since the official inquiry failed to reveal any political motives behind the Odessa riots, the St. Petersburg authorities were set at ease and were only too glad to take the word of the satraps of the Pale, who reported that the anti-Jewish movement had started as a crude protest of the masses against the failure to solve the Jewish question, namely to solve it in a reactionary spirit and as a manifestation of the popular resentment against Jewish exploitation. The old charge of separatism against the Jews thus found a companion in a new accusation, the economic exploitation of the Christian population of the Pale. The committee appointed at the recommendation of the Council of State was enjoined to conduct a strict inquiry into both these charges. Concretely, the work of the committee reduced itself to a consideration of two questions. One related to the Kahal, or the amelioration of the spiritual life of the Jews, and the other referring to the feasibility of thinning out the pale of settlement, with the end in view of weakening the economic competition of the Jews. The material bearing on these questions included, apart from Brafman's standard work, a memorandum concerning the more important administrative problems in the Southeast which had been submitted in 1871 by Governor-General of Kiev, Dondukov Korsakov, to the Tsar. The author of the memorandum voices his conviction that principal endeavors of the government must be concentrated upon the Jewish question. The Jews are becoming a great economic power in the southwestern provinces. They purchase or mortgage estates and obtain control of the factories and mills as well as of the grain, timber, and liquor trade, thereby arousing the bitter resentment of the Christian population, particularly in the rural districts. Moreover, the Jewish masses, refusing to follow the lead of the handful of russified Jewish intellectuals, live entirely apart and remain in the throes of Talmudic fanaticism and Hasidic obscurantism. They possess complete self-government in their cars, their own system of finance in the basket tax, their separate charitable institutions, their own traditional schools in the headers of which there are in the southwest no less than 6,000. In addition, the Jews possess an international organization, the World Kahal, represented by Alliance Israelite Universelle in Paris, whose president, Adolf Kremio, had had the audacity to protest to the Russian government against the acts of violence perpetrated upon the Jews. For all these reasons, the governor-general is of the opinion that the revision of the whole legislation affecting the Jews 
has become an imperative necessity. Footnote. According to the official figures quoted in the memorandum, the number of Jews in the three southwestern governments, i.e. Volhynia, Podolia, and the Kiev province, amounted to 721,080. Of these, 14% lived in rural districts and 86% in cities and towns. They owned 27 sugar refineries out of 105, 619 distilleries out of 712, 5,700 mills out of 6,353, and so forth. The production of the industrial establishments in the hands of the Jews reached the sum of 70 million rubles. A similar tone was adopted in the other official documents, which came into the hands of the Committee for the Amelioration of the Condition of the Jews. The communications of the governors and the reports of the members of the committee were all animated by the same spirit, the spirit that spoke through Brahman's book of the Kahal. This was but natural. The officials to whom this book had been sent by the central government for guidance drew from it their whole political wisdom in things Jewish and in their replies endeavored to fall in with the instructions of the Council of States conveyed to them by the committee, namely to consider ways and means to weaken the communal cohesion among the Jews. In the Kingdom of Poland, the governors complained similarly in their reports that the Jews of the province, though accorded equal rights by Wielepolski, had not complied with the conditions attached to that act, to wit, to abandon the use of their own language and script in exchange for the favors bestowed upon them. Outside of a handful of assimilated Poles of the mosaic persuasion who were imbued with Polish chauvinism, the Hasidic rank and file were permeated by extreme separatism Fostered by the car through its various agencies, the congregational boards, the rabbinate, the headers, and the host of special institutions. These and similar communications formed the groundwork of the reports, or more correctly, the bills of indictment in which the members of the committee charged the Jews with the terrible crime of constituting a religio-political caste, in other words, a nationality. Following the lead of Brafman, the members of the committee laid particular emphasis in their reports on the obnoxiousness of the Talmud and the danger of Jewish separatism. Needless to say, the conclusion offered by them or of the kind anticipated in the instructions of the Council of State the necessity of wiping out the last vestige of Jewish self-government, such as the Jewish community, the school, the mutual relief societies, in a word, everything that tends to foster the communal cohesion among the Jews. The barbarism of these proposals were covered by the fig leaf of enlightenment. When the benighted Jewish masses will have fused with the highly cultured populace of Russia. In other words, when the Jews will have ceased to be Jews. 
then will the Jewish question find its solution. In the meantime, however, the Jews are to be curbed by the bridle of disabilities. The referees of the committee on the question of the Pale of Settlement, Grigoriev, frankly stated, what is important in this question is not whether the Jews will fare better when granted the rights of residence all over the empire, but rather the effect of these measures on the economic well-being of an enormous part of Russian people. From this point of view, the referee finds that it would be dangerous to let the Jews pass beyond the pale, since the plague, which had thus far been restricted to the western provinces, will then spread over the whole empire. For a long time, the committee was at a deadlock, held down by bureaucratic reaction. It was only towards the end of its existence that the voice from another world, the posthumous voice of dead and buried liberalism, resounded in its midst. In 1880, the committee was presented with the memorandum by two of its members, Nekludov and Karakov, in which the bold attempt was made to champion the heretic point of view of complete Jewish emancipation. The language of the memorandum was one which the Russian government had not heard for a long time. In the name of morality and justice, the authors of the memorandum call upon the government to abandon its grossly utilitarian attitude towards the Jews, who are to be denied civil rights so long as they do not prove useful to the original population. They expose the selfish motive underlying the bits of emancipation which had been doled out to the Jews during the preceding spell of liberalism, the desire not to help the Jews, but to exploit their services. First guild merchants, physicians, lawyers, artisans were admitted into the interior for the sole purpose of developing business in those places and filling the palpable shortage in artisans and professional men. As soon as this or that category of Jews was found to be serviceable to the Russian people, it was relieved and relieved only in parts from the pressure of exceptional laws and received into the dominant population of the empire. But the millions of plain Jews, abandoned by the upper classes, have continued to languish in the suffocating pale. The Jewish population is denied the elementary right granting liberty of pursuit, freedom of movement, and land ownership, such as only a criminal may be deprived of by a verdict of the courts. As it is, discontent is rife among these disinherited masses. The rising generation of Jews has already begun to participate in the revolutionary movement to which they had hitherto been strangers. The system of oppression must be set aside. All the Jewish defects, their separatism and one-sided economic activity are merely the fruits of this oppression. Where the law has no confidence in the population, there inevitably the population has no confidence in the law and it naturally becomes an enemy of the existing order of things.
human reason does not admit any consideration which might justify the placing of many millions of the Jewish population on a level with criminal offenders. The first step in the direction of complete emancipation ought to be the immediate grant of the right of domicile all over the empire. Footnote. The narrow utilitarianism of the governmental policy in the Jewish question may also be illustrated by the official attitude towards the promotion of agriculture among the Jews. Under Alexander I and Nicholas I, Jewish agricultural colonization in the south of Russia was encouraged by the grant of special privileges, though the Jewish settlers were subjected to the stern tutelage of bureaucratic inspectors. But under Alexander II, when southern Russia was no longer in need of artificial colonization, the government discontinued its policy of promoting Jewish colonization and on new case issued in 1866, stopped the settlement of Jews in agricultural colonies altogether. A little later, the Jewish colonies in the southwest were deprived of a large part of their lands, which were distributed among the peasants. End of note. These bold wars which turned the Jews from defendants into plaintiffs ran counter to the fundamental task of the committee, which, according to the original instructions received by it, was expected to draft its plans in a spirit of reaction. At any rate, these wars were uttered too late. A new era was approaching, which, in solving the Jewish question, resorted to the methods such as would have horrified even the conservative statement of the 70s, the era of pogroms and cruel disabilities. End of section 14.